Hello there, listener, and welcome to the Wiser Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Nico Vreke, and as usual, I'm joined by my good friend, Sam, also known as Sam Jam Harris. And there's a Webster in there as well, right? It's Sam Webster Harris. That's the official name, right? Yeah, it's a Webster. Nice. Yeah. Fantastic. That is my actual middle name. It's such a cool middle name. Sam and I, we just finished reading the book False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet, written by Bjorn Lomborg. And this is an interesting book because it's a contentious one. Is that the right word? Yes. Yes. Anyway, so to summarize the book a bit, allow me to read you one quote. We need to take a collective deep breath and understand what climate change is and isn't. It is not like a huge asteroid hurtling towards the Earth where we need to stop everything else and mobilize the entire global economy to ward off the end of the world. It is instead a long-term chronic condition like diabetes, a problem that needs attention and focus, but one that we can live with. And while we manage it, we can live our lives and address the many other challenges that ultimately will matter much more in the future. So, yes, from that and from the title, you can probably tell what this book is about. I would call this a climate change skeptic book, but I would say that the book is not necessarily skeptical about climate change. The book is mostly skeptical about the response that we're, we've been having towards climate change and the public discourse around it. It's against the general movement of reacting like we really have to save the world urgently. And it's like trying to be like a scientific approach of like, hey, climate change is happening. But here's a scientific political approach around how we spend our money in the economy and how we're actually going to engineer to have like our best lives in total, which in general, I think as an idea is very useful to approach all the things that we're talking about very skeptically. Because as someone that has a science background, we're studying biology where we're so much of what we're talking about with climate change and everyone just tries to prove something that they want to prove. So a lot of the studies that you'll read were always slightly rose tinted towards somehow it would have a climate agenda, which is a problem. And like actually really looking at the studies that have been done, analyzing where they've made assumptions that just make like it's worse and it's super useful. But I feel like he does the exact same thing in the opposite direction with some of the things that he talks about and cherry picks his own data to make it look like he's educated. I feel like it's a book that's a tool for climate skeptics to feel like they're educatedly saying that we don't need to act on climate change rather than actually fully addressing what to do about the situation. But some policies that I actually I think are quite important and I do feel slightly less stressed about some of the things as well after reading the book. Good. Let's give a short summary of the book. So I think one of the things that it repeats quite a few times is that climate change is real. It's caused by humans and by our burning of fossil fuels like coal, oil and gas. And it is a problem. However, media mainly are over-dramatizing climate change with all of the headlines that we've seen where if we don't do something before 2030, the world's going to end and all of that. We could talk about that later, a consequence of the human tendency to be more interested in things that are dangerous and scary. I believe this reminds me of an experiment that was done where there was a newspaper that tried to be like a good news newspaper. And so basically they only showed like pretty good news. I guess they were almost neutral and that they had a good balance between good and bad news. And they failed because people like to click or read things that are scary. There's a similar concept in science, again, in terms of most studies will prove something that they're out to prove rather than prove that like they had nothing to prove. Most things that get published are just the stuff that like, hey, we need to change what we think, which isn't always correct. So I would say that the core case of the book is that because media and politicians have over-dramatized climate change, we are putting too much effort, time and money into trying to combat climate change by mainly reducing carbon emissions. And the book says that 
whatever we do in terms of cutting carbon, even if we managed to reach the goals that we set ourselves, has actually like quite little effect. I think one example, I don't know by heart, but he gives an example that even if all of the Western economies essentially stop and grind to a halt, still like in 2100, the temperature will only be one degree Fahrenheit lower. Maybe it's less, maybe it's more, but it's still going to rise by three or four degrees Fahrenheit. And so the case that he makes is that one, climate change will mainly hurt the poor. And it is the poor that are also hurt the most by current attempts at reducing carbon emissions. Because however which way we try, reducing carbon emissions essentially slows down economic growth. And it's that economic growth that helps the poor adapt to the effects of climate change. And so the book makes a case that instead of trying to combat emissions, we should put all of that money and all of that effort instead of investing in innovation, so better energy sources, and some more targeted reactions to the effects of climate change, like investing in dikes, in awareness, in air conditioning, etc., etc., that specifically combats the results or the consequences of climate change. Is that a fair summary? Is that what you took away as well? Yeah, definitely. And I think he just really wants to get you to look at the cost of what the measure would be to deal with any specific problem that you're solving rather than trying to like tackle all the climate change all at once. And things like sort of flood defenses can be really cheap in terms of the amount of people that they save per person versus trying to spend the world's budget on like solving climate change kind of thing. Or if you look at some cases that get used, climate helps malaria spreading by the slight increases in temperature and the boundaries of mosquitoes. But actually, it's super cheap to reduce malaria directly and economies in the third world can just spend enough on medical aid for it to just not even be a problem anyway whereas trying to solve the entire climate change would be a really inefficient strategy to reduce malaria he certainly has some good examples of things that are just inefficient for sure another way to summarize the book is that let's say that there's two different worlds in 2100 one world is the green progress world where we make major advancements towards green energy we have like very high carbon taxes and we reduce emissions. And in that world, there is less climate change, so less increasing like temperature of the planet. And there is also some economic growth. The average income of the global citizen is like $100,000 in today's dollars. So just for inflation, which is insane because that's richer than any other nation right now. So this is 2100, right? So green world, 100K um, average yearly income or GDP per capita, and there's a mitigated increase in temperature on the world, but there's still a significant increase in temperature on the world, by the way. So like whatever we do in the best case scenario still doesn't have a huge impact and it's not slowing climate change dramatically. The other world, which he calls like petrol fueled world or carbon fueled world or whatever what he calls it, there's less slowing of the economy, which results in an average global income or a per capita GDP globally of $180,000. So it's like 80% more than in the case of the first scenario. So everyone's essentially way richer, but there's also more climate change. So the average temperature in the world is higher, uh, water, like seawater levels, but people are way richer and are able to deal with it in a better way. Half of, of the Netherlands is underwater, he says, but because Netherlands is so rich, it doesn't matter, right? Because they build dikes. That's what people do. Anyway, this is the fundamental case that he makes. The fact that he's always using generally accepted sort of scientific reports and bodies 
makes that seem like a very compelling case, apart from if you look at the details, he's talking about like many trillions of the costs of any of the climate action to from our economies. That's why it's going to like harm our economy so much. And he's also ignoring the costs of actually ignoring climate change. And so he talks about like the amount of subsidies we put into solar panels and renewables. And from the same report that he's quoted, didn't even note the fact that there's twice as much being spent on fossil fuel subsidies, which is kind of a cost to the economy at the same time. And he just picks the data that he wants and then plates that, which is exactly what he was complaining about with the climate reports that he's been like trying to debunk. So I just don't think it's fully accurate. And then also some of his data are on like the rates of renewable growth and he's saying like solar and wind would not even contribute more than 5% in like the long-term plans. But actually, if you go to the same website, which is quoting the International Energy Agency, this has already been updated because the Russian invasion and basically everyone wanted to have more energy sovereignty and not depend on Russian fossil fuels. So the amount of investment going into those things has grown. And so actually it's really on track for like actually some really big gains in renewables. And we're actually going in some very positive steps towards the targets of renewables growth in the Western world. And we do need to help contribute to like the third world and stuff. He basically is wrong about a lot of stuff and it's kind of annoying. And if you read that book, you can kind of think that he's mostly right. But if you look at the science behind it, it's not. And that was the overall point of what he's trying to make but it doesn't fully stand up let's talk about positives first and then we can go into critiques right sure so i would say that for me it was a bit of a breath of fresh air because i felt concerned about climate change and so this book did lessen my concern and sense of urgency that i had the fundamental gist of the book is that the world is changing but overall humans will still be better off there's a point in the book in the beginning where he, he talks about essentially scientists get asked by politicians, if we want to stop the increase in temperature of the world, what do we need to do? Climate scientists say it's technically possible, but it would mean that we have to reduce carbon emissions by like 98% or something crazy. And then politicians are like, we need to cut all of our emissions by 98% and we need to do it before the year 2030, which is technically impossible. And he compares it to if politicians would ask scientists, how can we avoid car-related deaths on the roads, then scientists would reply, it's technically feasible, but in order to do that, you would have to reduce the speed limit to three miles per hour. And so we're putting ourselves in, like targets that don't make sense, and the economic repercussions are way too high, and it just makes more sense to find like a sensible middle ground. And I found it kind of quite refreshing, personally. If you look at most of the problems in the world that have arisen from a new technology, we never went backwards after we had it as humans, but we've always solved the problem going forwards with some like extra invention and innovation and technology. And it's very much like, let's stop talking about like completely stopping these things and let's just work about like how we can make progress. And then also things like, I think just the news is very overwhelming for people and the idea that we are all going to die maybe in 20 years. I think it does just add to the general sense that the world is ending and everything is awful and that they should have bad mental health because they can't do anything about it. Yes. That is one of my big frustrations. It's people saying that I don't want to have kids because they're bad for the world. So two things. One is that today humanity has it better than ever before. The amount of free time that like the average Western person has is insane. The life expectancy is insane in every possible measure, pretty much. 
the world is better off now than it used to be. But because of media, we just think it's way worse. We hear about a terrorist attack here, a climate disaster there, a flood there, an earthquake there. And so it just frustrates me that then people take that as a, oh my God, we're so terribly off. Because all of the Gen Seers that say that, they have lived the easiest life you can imagine, of at least of the people that I know, right? They never had to do anything. They never had a shortage of anything. And then they were like, oh, I'm not going to have kids because the world is going to be fucked or is fucked. And then the second thing that also frustrates me is I don't want to have kids because kids are bad for the environment. And then my response is, well, if you think the environment is so important, why don't you have a kid and raise them to be a net positive for the environment? If you truly believe that you don't want to have kids because you care so much about the environment, then that for me is essentially admitting that you can't grow a human being that can be a net positive. Yeah. And I think like the philosophical, moral, like thought experiment. Let's say you are actually your parents and the kid that they're going to have is you. Would you prefer your parents to not have you right now in the year 2023 because it's a bit of a scary time and like climate and you might not enjoy your life because it's scary and you might not make the world a better place? Or would you rather they did have you so you could like maybe do something about it? And I'd rather my parents had me this year rather than the 30 years ago when they did have me if that was the only option, because I'd kind of like to be alive, I'd like to do something about it. Okay, this is a random question. Would you prefer to be born today or when you did? It was really good to grow up before, like I didn't have a smartphone, didn't have a phone until I was like 14. And yeah, I think I just, it was nice being able to learn navigation and things. Like I drove around America when I was 20 with just a compass. 10 years later, I'm like, shit, I do need like fucking GPS to get anywhere. I think growing up with Facebook is like a permanent thing and Instagram is not so healthy. The news is definitely worse than it used to be when we were growing up. So I kind of think we actually had a like slightly goldenish period in terms of less alarmism and fear and judging of each other. Healthcare is definitely better and knowledge, mental health and these things is kind of nicer. So I'm going to go with when we did grow up. I think 90s was good. You? Similar thinking process as you, this essence of modernity is that everything is trying to hack your internal reward systems. And, you know, as you mentioned, Instagram and all like TikTok is is way worse even, right? And it's like companies are getting so good at just playing you like a fiddle that it's probably not a bad thing for you to be born in a time where they still didn't have that much of a grasp of society and their tentacles didn't reach that far. That being said, I enjoy living and I do believe that there's going to be a point where we're going to understand the process of aging so much. This brings us back to um, lifespan. Um, if I was born today, then I think I would feel above 50% certainty that I could probably live to be 150 years old, like healthily. Which would be nice. Which would be <laughs> nice, but I, I'm pretty happy where I am today and how I am today. So because of that, I would still go for the born where I was. So I prefer to be born as I did. So critiques, right? You already mentioned a few. One of the biggest things he talks about is delaying action and that it's going to cost us trillions to do and that like all this news is bad for people and the alarmism and that we should just have a climate tax. But the climate tax is one of the hardest policies to push forwards and to make happen and it's never going to happen without taking climate change super seriously and being like holy shit we have to do this as a world as a united net thing where like just as humanity we need to have a climate tax that's not going to happen without big level news and like taking the thing seriously 
So it's just a massive hypocritic statement for him to make the entire time. Annoys me. I think that's fair. Because he does make the case for a progressive carbon tax that is global and equal. It's really interesting because maybe we already had this discussion around capitalism where I always say that I strongly believe that if we can quantify everything, then we can calculate the negative externalities of everything and start putting that into the price of things. So the fact that I can fly to Spain for 50 euros doesn't make any sense. I need to be paying way more because there's a huge amount of carbon that gets emitted because of that flight. And so I think a global carbon tax makes a ton of sense. And I think that's probably the most efficient way to do these things. But the problem is that actually putting that into practice is really hard. And yeah, you make a fair point that we need to be super dramatic for countries to actually be willing to implement these hard things. It takes some really big triggering event or need to make stuff like that happen and the UN and stuff started from like world wars and things. It's like it takes something big to, to make something as binding across the world to happen. Then, like I mentioned earlier, he's always talking about fossil fuels as like a cheaper, really handy solution to help us like not harm the poor and how countries just do their thing. But he didn't really talk at all about like the politics of things like Russia and like energy sovereignty and the fact that actually a lot of countries can't make electricity because they don't have any fossil fuels. But if they were doing renewables, they could make their own energy. We could have a more peaceful world and it might save those countries a lot of money, such as when Russia goes to war and we suddenly have an energy crisis due to the fact that we rely on fossil fuels. So actually investing in renewables is a really good use of money to stop problems in the world and to save lives. Counter arguments. So for most countries, when you say renewables, it's either solar or wind. And I think that everyone knows this. If you want to rely on solar, you need sun. If you want to rely on wind, you need wind. But if there's no sun or no wind, then you're screwed. And so this is, I would say, not a criticism of the book. But my observation is that it wouldn't have surprised me if the book made a really strong case for nuclear fuel and nuclear energy. As a counter-argument to your point is that I think one of the points that the book makes is that at current technology levels, both solar and wind are actually really inefficient. Actually, in Belgium, we had some subsidies for people placing solar on their houses. And the government ended up clawing back the promises that they made, which was like a huge drama, just because... I think the subsidies just didn't make any sense, but they clawed them back because they were either like super inefficient or whatever. And so I think this would be used by the author Bjorn Lomborg as an example of subsidies for these technologies. At today's technologies, solar panels are too inefficient to actually make a lot of sense. And we should instead invest in other things like nuclear or innovation into solar to make it more effective because it needs to reach a certain threshold before it actually makes sense, like massively deploying these things. Yeah, more investment in innovation is a good thing. I think it's already competitive without subsidies. And certainly investment in energy storage, because of you know, the classic, when there's no wind or there's no sun, this is a problem. And yeah, that's certainly something that we should just be doing in general. And then, yeah, he doesn't talk about nuclear that much. He generally just talks about his favor for fossil fuels and nuclear is something that can open in all directions, possibly. And if we did have that as, again, an energy sovereignty for countries that can build it, if it's a cheaper, easy technology that's safe. Yeah, I would say that this is, one, a comment on the book, a negative comment on the book, and two, I would say a negative comment on nuclear fuel. And that is a bit of the black swan from Taleb uh, situation, where if you're using solar or wind, 
there's literally no scenario where that can result in something that's like catastrophic. With nuclear, that's not the case. A significant human error, you can try and mitigate it all you want, but there is a world where if we invest heavily into nuclear, it goes wrong and you get this Fukushima-style event. So I would argue that's one counterpoint against nuclear, but it's also a counterpoint against the book. So he sees temperature rises as a linear thing. Like more carbon gets emitted, temperatures go up, sea levels go up, but he doesn't really touch upon a potential like catastrophic event that might even create a self-reinforcing cycle that make the whole thing way worse. So yeah, I would say that that would be a counter argument against assuming that everything just continues linearly instead of like potentially. He doesn't talk too much about any like worst case scenarios where like the worst case scenarios with climate are bad. Like maybe they aren't as likely as some people think, but they can still happen. (laughs) Same as if everything was built using nuclear and stuff, like there are some pretty big worst case scenarios. And yeah, he generally speaks about general disasters from climate change each year being not that bad and he sort of thinks that drought isn't a problem he thinks that there's more green stuff going on as in like greening of the world and that there's more plants growing but then actually just the general weirding of the weather that can just wipe out crops and cause other problems can have a big effect on countries and nations and, and stuff he just sort of avoids that and like the potential disasters from that are quite big and worth being slightly scared about okay do you have any other comments general conclusion think about mental health think about how urgent some action is and what's the best way of spending money to actually solve climate change rather than just jumping to like really big grand conclusions and trying to look good and saying that you're going to make stuff happen that doesn't make sense at an economical level for countries or the world. But his data isn't always as correct as he says, and it's not as scientific as he, as he claims and overall could just lead to people like not really doing that much. And most of the solutions that he talks about wouldn't really happen if you kind of just followed his general ideology it's overall not a healthy book but actually an interesting thing to read and i think people that are into the science of it might enjoy it and i think it's not so good for someone that is a climate skeptic so they will just sort of (laughs) deny them the things but someone that's actually really into climate it might actually help them see like just the other viewpoints that could make sense i would say i actually like really learned a lot from the book just because i haven't been paying too much attention and i'm probably a bit too convinced by it as in I really feel like more at ease, you know, whenever there's elections, I'm going to be digging a bit more into some of the climate promises that some of the parties here are making and thinking about these policies in a different way. Like I always thought that it's a good thing to slow down growth and like really invest in renewables and all of these things. And and now I'm like, yeah, but maybe like not always, you know, or not in every case. And I'm also less panicked about it and less concerned about it in general. So I'd say I did enjoy it, and, and that's probably my big takeaway, although I probably didn't do enough fact-checking to take a more measured approach or like to take fewer things away from this book, if that makes sense. Like I probably believe in it a bit too much. So yeah, that's my general takeaway. If you read this book 20 years ago, how would have it have changed your life? Some of the things that you mentioned, and I would have been a bit more skeptical from the start when I hear things around like, how much something's going to cost us not acting on climate and just look at like the assumptions that people are making and how they're extrapolating things that maybe is bad data and in the opposite direction, sort of how good is climate action going to be doing it now versus like the things we might not be skipping over. So I would have definitely been more skeptical, but I think as overall, I think I've been saying that like you still need to do stuff. I think <laughs> looking after the climate and the world 
is not a good thing in transitioning from fossil fuels faster than just waiting for them to run out is pretty important. And spending some money on our GDP to get there would be useful and can also save some money. I think that's fair. For me, honestly, like I don't think about the climate enough. I consider myself a very energy efficient person, but I don't necessarily do it because of climate change because I just realize what tiny impact whatever I do have. And so I would say it wouldn't have changed my life at all. Although I might have fewer friends, right? I read a book like this and someone comes to me and is like, oh my God, the environment. And I'll be like, actually, I'll be that person. So I might have some fewer friends or whatever. I think it is healthy to actually question. But my friend that actually told me to read this, I feel like he's losing some friends talking about it. <laughs> and he is a nice guy, but he is very much sort of like further than you. Lines of like, just don't need to do anything. Come on, look at the science, guys. And then there's like, bro, um, be careful. And I think he, he was just sort of like fed up of being told that like the world's ending and he has to do something. It's very relieving book for people that to read. Be like, hey, there's science saying that to do anything. This is great. All right. What business would you start based on the principles of this book? There's some businesses that already exist around like the pricing of actions and like political decisions and ones that can like really fact check it or like a level for just net good for humanity and what the real costs are versus benefits that can be a really good source would be nice and somehow making gold standard around what humans should or shouldn't do in a way that people could understand better would be something that might be interesting to do. Otherwise, I'm interested to hear what you would talk about. One of the things that the book talks about is geoengineering. And geoengineering is essentially like hacking the environment, I would call it. And it gives the example that there was a volcanic eruption, I don't know when, like a few, a couple of decades ago, that essentially put so much ash into the Earth's atmosphere that for 18 months, the average temperature on this planet was one degree Celsius lower. Yeah, I think it was more the sulfur dioxide than the ash. Good, thank you. And so the case that the book makes is that these are actually things that potentially we could do as well, which means that you can build machines that put out certain substances into the air, into the atmosphere, that would form this sort of cloud that reflects less sunlight through. And so if I think about the most likely scenario when it comes to climate change for the world is, I think, a scenario where we do a little. People are focused on growth more than they are in the environment. As you mentioned, there's a sort of like fallacy of the commons where everyone needs to do something. And if one person doesn't do it, then all of the others won't do it either because we need to like all do it together. And so it's clear that everyone's kind of failing. It's really hard to build cohesion around this. And so I think climate change is going to get worse. And if we then follow the scenario, or at least the black swan scenario, where suddenly something goes really wrong, then that could have a major impact in a very short amount of time. And I think that's what geoengineering is. He gives a few more examples. He was talking about like vaporizing water with salt in. Yeah, like cloud seeding above the oceans that can just make it more reflective. My thesis actually was geoengineering around uh, reflectivity of crops using like natural varieties in genetics that just reflect more of the infrared that hits like croplands you can reduce like the surface temperatures of the planet by like one degree and make crops more resilient because they get less drought stress and stuff quite cool stuff but like getting the adoption of it is very hard and it's one of those things that i think that we need a lot more research around and modeling around how it can actually impact because of just any quick action on like the climate can just make it a lot weirder. If we just suddenly made the whole world like one degree less, yeah, we could have like more hurricanes and like we, we just wouldn't really know what would happen. So like it's a hard one. 
And then there's the whole other debate around using these things stops us from trying to find a way to transition faster. If it buys us time to transition, that is still a good thing. And if we can geoengineer in ways that yeah, just give us more time and for other technologies to come in and make things in a more sort of sustainable, cheaper way that we can grow our economies and, and exist and be happy, like that is a good thing. And it kind of thinks that sort of helping like sink carbon before going into things that actually just like affect general temperatures. Obviously, on like smaller scales, it kind of just impact a little bit to do them gradually rather than necessarily just going like, okay, it's too late. Let's just dump something that will like drop the world by two degrees would make more sense. And actually some kind of like strategy around geoengineering to like do a little bit each year could actually be quite good. I think that's fair. How would this business get going? I'm intrigued. Like who would be paying for it? I have no idea. I haven't thought it through. This is a very asymmetric bet where maybe the even better thing would be to invest in geoengineering so you can spread your bets, right? Where if one of them works out, then then you make a, a crazy amount of money. But it's just that this is a very asymmetric bet where in 99% of the cases, it's either not needed or the consequences are too dire or we can't get on about like consensus of around if we should use this. But in the 1% of the cases that it works, then suddenly you're a billionaire, right? That's how I think now, you know? What is this 1% that can get me the most upside? But I wouldn't start it, right? What do I know? First of all, I mean, the business that would just make money is just funding more of the research and things from like just different that are already available. There are some cool examples of these doing things in this area and it would be a nice area to be doing things in. Cool. Okay. Who would this be an ideal gift for and why? So I think the climate skeptics would love it and giving it to someone that cares about climate might come across badly, especially, like I said, the name of the book sounds like it's completely against climate. But for me, I think it should go to the people that are caring about climate and sort of listen to all these things and are feeling like the world is going to end and that we need to do some stuff urgently. But they should also have some science around the fact that like some of the things in here aren't quite correct. And so I'm a bit annoyed, but I do think it's something that actually a lot of people should read who are really stressed out about climate that it would just make them feel a bit more, okay, we still need to do stuff. I'm just not going to stay awake at night. <laughs> Panicking. I agree. I think there's a lot of people who are very concerned about climate change, but whose individual actions will do zero. And I think those people, the ones that are really concerned and are like saying, I don't want to have kids and whatever, they're probably doing things on an individual level, trying to minimize car usage, etc. But I do think that they'll benefit from this even if it's just in terms of calmness, right? Where it's not as bad as you think it is and it's not as bad as people make it out to be. And even if it's as bad, like your individual actions are actually like very limited. So I guess for those people, it'd be a good gift. But I fully agree with you that the title is terrible and you might lose some friends again. Yeah, I do I do feel like the auth likes selling books. I think he's kind of pandering to the sort of the climate skeptics and just trying to make them feel good and saying that he can go on these podcasts and just sort of talk about like how climate change isn't such a problem and and that he doesn't believe everything that he's put in the books because he just must know that he's fudging the data. And I just feel like he just avoids some of the conversations. I feel like he's clever enough to know some of the things that he's making are false and that he's put these books together because he knows how much money he can make and that he'll get a big audience. Yeah, exactly. He identified a niche of the population and wrote a book that they'll gladly share and give us an ideal gift to. If I'd read this book 20 years ago, maybe I would have <laughs> written it. <laughs> that sums it up. All right, Sam, thank you for this. Listener, thank you as well. For our next book, we're going a bit different. I think this might be the first 
fiction book that we'll ever read or that we've read for this podcast. And as you know, this season, we're going a bit random. So we are reading The Three Body Problem, which is a novel by Liu Chitin. Chitin. I, sorry for that. Yeah, I can't say his name either. It's a really good book. I have already read it, so I'm looking forward. All right, Sam, thank you. Listener, thank you as well. If you did enjoy and you're listening to this on Spotify, you can now give us a rating. So please feel free to give us, if you did, a five-star rating. Let us know what you think. And we look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Ciao. Yeah, see you soon.